Welcome, everybody, to the OVS Orbit podcast. Today, I have with me Bruce Davey and Larry Peterson. These are, are both big names, so uh, I imagine that a lot of the listeners will already know who they are, but let me introduce them anyway. I have a long history with Bruce, actually. He was an architect of MPLS at Cisco, uh, and then I got to know him when he became our architect at Nasura Networks. And then after Nasura was acquired by VMware, he became the CTO for Asia Pacific. And in addition, Bruce was the chair of SIGCOM from 2009 to 2013. Bruce, do you want to add anything more about yourself? Uh, That covers all the high points, I think. All right, great. Larry Peterson, who is also here today, is Professor Emeritus at Princeton. His focuses uh, include uh, networking and distributed systems. He's also well known uh, for Planet Lab. Larry, do you want to say anything more about yourself? Well, I guess I just I would just add that uh, since uh, stepping down at Princeton, I've been spending time with the Open Network Foundation working on open source software. So open source networking software is something that I've got a lot of interest in. You know, that that's interesting. I, I used to spend some time with, uh, with ONF uh, also, but I, I don't think um, our involvements there uh, really uh, overlap. So Bruce and Larry, uh, you've been uh, working together for a, a while. Do you want to say anything uh, about how that uh, how that got started? Yeah, um, well, thank you. It's been more than a while. Um, so I think Larry and I met uh, sometime in the early 1990s. Um, and initially we collaborated on one of the research projects I was doing before I joined Cisco, uh, which was on what was in those days, the pretty crazy idea of gigabit networking. Um, and gigabit networking, that's so fast. <laughs> Yeah, it was insanely fast. Um, and I, I, we actually worked on, I worked on the sort of the hardware side and Larry on the software side of building what was one of the first um, gigabit NICs. Um, and I've actually, I've recently been revisiting that work because in retrospect, it was actually a smart NIC. Um, we just didn't, didn't call it that at the time. Um, but so, uh, so we had this um, research collaboration uh, going on in the early 90s. And then somewhere during that period, um, Larry made the somewhat rash decision to start working on a, a networking textbook. And, uh, and so we went from, uh, from being research collaborators to, to being co-authors. Um, and maybe Larry, you could, you could tell a little bit of your side of the story of, of how that, how that book started. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I can't remember why I made the crazy idea to write a book. I mean, it, at the time, everyone used Tannenbaum. It was, it was the, the book that we taught from. And uh, I must've decided for some reason that I, wanted to take a shot at it and got started on it and hadn't written a chapter or two and realized gotten it over my head. And uh, because of the collaboration Bruce and I had on, on the gigabit test bed, uh, asked him to join in. And uh, that uh, it was a great decision because it made, made the textbook both a lot easier to do and a lot more fun to do. And I think we did, we figured out at that point that we could actually um, work together as co-authors because we, we co-authored a, a sitcom paper together um, and, you, you, you know, Ben, I'm sure you know this, that, you know, co-authoring papers, it's quite a delicate dance sometimes to, to make sure that you're sort of respectful of the opinions of the other person and that you can, you know, generate a, a sort of consistent voice for your, for your writing and, and agree on what, what's the important points you want to make. So I guess a SIGCOM paper was a good uh, proof of concept. And, you know, from, from there, we just went on and did about 600 pages together. I was just going to say, we proved to be equally pedantic in different ways. In that <laughs> it's absolutely true. So I would hope that 600 pages of a textbook doesn't take the same amount of effort per page as, say, a 14-page paper. Uh, actually, it, it does, and possibly more. 
Um, I think that is actually, it's, it's the massive mistake that people make when they decide to write books is you sort of think, well, you know, I've written the occasional 15 or 20 page paper. It's just like a few of those in succession. Um, and, and, and I think it's, it's kind of like the person who says, well, you know, I can run two miles. How hard can a marathon be? It's just 13 of those put together. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it is a surprisingly large amount of work. I mean, in, in some respects, sometimes the words are easier to put together than, than in a research paper because, you know, you can often say go and read an RFC or something and figure out what you need to say without going and doing original research. So from that perspective, the words can come more quickly. But the flip side is if you make a mistake in a research paper, somebody will probably point it out in the review stage and, you know, cause you to fix it. Whereas if you make a mistake in a textbook, there's actually a pretty good chance it'll make it into print. And in the early days, that was super painful because you'd get a mistake into print and it would take you, you know, maybe a year to, uh, to fix that problem if you could you know, be lucky and do a reprint. Wow. You know, I, I haven't been involved in publishing textbooks, so that's interesting. So are, are, there, are there other things about uh, publishing textbooks where someone naively coming to it from, uh, you know, shorter academic publications would be surprised? I think the, the biggest thing that we learned over the years is the challenge of working with the publishing industry, publishers. And there's been a lot of turnover in the publishing industry. And um, we've, we've struggled with that at times. The personnel changes so fast that the people you're working with will change out from underneath you. And uh, well, I, you know, I won't spend too much time complaining about that. Bruce, Bruce may have <laughs> more to say, but <laughs> But I mean, where we finally ended up is that we just wanted control of our own, over our own publications. And so the biggest change that's happened that I see over the years is that self-publishing is now something that is, is doable. And we're, uh, we're trying to learn the, learn the ropes in doing that and, and making a go of it ourselves as self-publishers. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that story I told about sort of mistakes staying in print for years, like that's a relic of you know, an industry that in some respects is, is not yet fully caught up with the sort of the reality of the modern world. Um, but let me tell you a much more positive story from sort of the last couple of weeks. You know, so, so as Larry said, we're starting to go down the path of self-publishing. And historically, I would have said self-publishing was something that you would do if you were kind of a crank. You know, if you couldn't get a traditional publisher to take your work, then you'd go and self-publish. And, you know, there's certainly, you know, many, many examples of that. But, you know, because we have the good fortune to have built something of a sort of a reputation over 25 years of having this book in print, um, you know, we actually can go and do a book now and people kind of recognize that it's us and they've you know, seen books from us before and maybe they know who we are from other parts of our life. And so we don't necessarily need a publisher to say these people are not cranks. I mean, we may or may not be cranks, but we don't need a publisher to make that decision. On the plus side, we now, we work on our books using modern tooling. You know, we check everything into Git. We get, you know, people in the open source community to make corrections to our book, to suggest new content. And even things like proofreading, like people come and read what we've put up on GitHub and tell us when we make mistakes. And then at any given point, we can just pull the trigger and say, right, that's the version that we're going to put into print, or that's the version we're going to put into an ebook. And so um, two days ago, I received a couple of copies of a print version of our latest book on SDN. Um, we made the last edits to that book 12 days ago. And so when, when we were happy that we'd made enough edits and we'd found a bunch of mistakes thanks to you know, our own proofreading, but also input from other people, we said, yeah, this is, uh, this is good enough to go into print. And I uploaded the file to the print on demand service and 
you know, they, I said, send me a couple of copies and they sent me, you know, they printed a couple of copies and stuck them in the post. They were printed in Melbourne, um, shipped to my house. And I had a printed book 12 days after I finished editing it. And, you know, just to give you a data point for comparison, um, we delivered a finished manuscript to a traditional publisher at the end of 2019, um, which is to say 14 months ago. And we're thinking any day now, we will get that printed book back from them. It's, it's going to be right around the 14 to 15 month turnaround. To me, like that's an industry that is still living in the 20th century, possibly the 19th. And meanwhile, you know, we can generate new eBooks. You know, we can make a change to the eBook this afternoon or we can make a change to the printed book and you'll have it. If you, if you push buy tomorrow, you'll get the version that we uploaded today. Wow, that's a pretty good turnaround time, uh, and even more impressive when you compare it to the uh, you know over a uh, over a year turnaround time. The change in how you're uh, doing the book uh, is something that I want to talk about. It's I I think that you're going not just for turnaround time and bug fixing, but I think uh, that uh, one of the things you're looking for is to be able to take contributions from uh, from others that that uh, maybe aren't even ones that you've solicited. Maybe someone just shows up and says, um, you know, I've, I've got this, I've got this text and I think it's appropriate, perhaps as small as, uh, you know, a bug fix um, up, up to up to things that are bigger. So is that is that something that you're looking for? And, uh, and have you, I don't know, have, have you started getting that sort of thing? What, what, what do you have goals around that? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, um, you know, a, a thing that happens a lot when you when you do a book is somebody will point out that you failed to cite their research. Um, and uh, so, you know, nobody, nobody likes uh, to find that their work didn't get mentioned in a book. And uh, so just very recently, I had an example of that. And it was pretty legit, actually. Like, it wasn't just somebody being a, a whiner. It was like there were a couple of big pieces of research in the area of um, using SDN for traffic engineering. And we picked one and cited it. We didn't pick the other big one that happened around the same time. And the author of that other piece of work said, hey, you know, maybe you would be willing to cite my work too. And I felt a little bit bad. And I wrote, uh, you know, I wrote a couple of paragraphs about, about this work and I you know, sent it to him for review. And he said, wow, I didn't actually think you'd listen. Uh, <laughs> but so I, uh, you know, I made the change and that's what's in the book. If you get it today, it'll have that change, which was suggested by you know, a slightly grumpy researcher a month ago. But you know, more, more generally, um, I think if you look at the list of contributors to our most recent book, the, the big computer networking text, it's uh, on the order of a couple of dozen contributions um, of people who have read the book online. And, you know, yeah, probably most of them are in the sort of bug fix region, but we, we really do have aspirations to have people come in with, with bigger things um, where they say, you know, here's a, here's a topic that you haven't really covered. I'm willing to either review what you write or you know, draft some text for you or whatever. Uh, we we very much view this in the same model as uh, how you build open source software that you want people to be making contributions to it. You don't want it to be just a couple of people doing all the work. Yeah, I think that that idea of, of borrowing the idea from open source softwares is a big one. Um, it's it's both like Bruce said, there are people that will just come with bug fixes and very low effort things that they can do that's really really helpful. But there's other people that will want to come in and, and add functionality, so to speak. And uh, we're trying to accommodate both. We've been really, I think, pretty successful on the bug fix. I'm, I'm really happy students you know, love to, to find mistakes in books and then tell you about it and, have, and, and see the, the change. It's a real you know, important way for them to uh, provide feedback. But slightly bigger than that, one of the things that 
uh, we've learned from software is you have to make the components accessible and, and more modular. Uh, and that then lowers the barrier for people to contribute to bits and pieces instead of having to, to be part of the, the, the huge thing. So uh, while, while the, the original and main textbook is you know, hundreds of pages long, we've been focusing on shorter pieces of work that are easier than to pair up with you know, a domain expert that can help us uh, flesh out the story. And so that's kind of the plan going forward that we can, we can link up with um, you know, the expert in, in, in the area, whatever it might be, and get them to contribute on, on bite-sized pieces of text instead of having to, uh, they're not very likely to give up their, their day jobs to go you know, write 600 pages. Yeah, I think actually, you know, to be honest, like this, this whole idea of, of moving to open source actually came about in 2012, just around the time that Nasira was, was getting acquired by VMware. And, uh, you know, I, at that point, I'd been working with, with you, Ben, and, and the Open vSwitch team for, you know, a bit over six months. And I, I had just, you know, really had this insider's view of how powerful open source software was. And, you know, Larry and I just had this sort of epiphany that that would be a much more enjoyable way for us to produce the sixth edition of our book than the way we'd done the previous five. Um, and, you know, to be honest, like doing the first two editions of a book is a lot of fun because, you know, the first one, you're creating something from scratch. The second one, you're kind of taking your alpha code and turning it into something that's actually good or hopefully good for the, for the, the second release. Um, by the time you get to the fourth and fifth editions, it's becoming a little bit less of a satisfying project. You're kind of, you're making changes that are pretty incremental quite often. Um, and so the idea of like, we could actually leverage a community of people to help us make a better sixth edition was really important. And, uh, and so that was kind of the inspiration that came from our experience in, in living in the open source software world. So has it been a, a journey uh, since 2012 to take <laughs> sort of the yeah. traditionally published book and bring it into what you have today? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, um, again, it's just showing you how fast the publishing industry moves. Um, so we literally had the first conversation with the publisher in 2012. And you know, we sort of said, hey, look, this will be great you know, because you know, you'll get a better book you'll keep us motivated to work on it. And, and you know, believe me, we're not very motivated to work on it right now because um, we, we had finished the fifth edition a little bit prior to that discussion. Um, and so, you, you, you know, uh, talking to somebody about doing their next edition, it, is, it, it doesn't go over well when you ask a public, an, an author who's just finished a book, do you want to do another one? <laughs> so we were definitely not that excited about jumping into the sixth edition, but this idea of, of bringing in a community to produce the sixth edition did get us excited. So we had this discussion in 2012 Anyway, so we, we kind of we went down this path and of course the publisher's first thought is, but wait, you're giving the content away for free. How will I make money? Um, and you know, our response was, well, actually there's a, quite a good history of people making money selling packaged versions of open source software. Um, you know, and there's also people make, who make money by selling printed open source material, including the very publisher we work with. They used to take RFCs print them and bind them and sell them, um, which they were you know, legitimately able to do. People apparently liked having bound RFCs occasionally. So, so we knew that there was a, a precedent for doing it. And we kind of said to them, look, we think you can still make money. You know, it's obviously your, you know, your decision if you want to do that, um, but we think it'll be better for the book. And then from our perspective as authors, you know, we've never been about making money, right? Um, please don't ever think that writing a textbook is a way to make money. Um, 
you know, the only person I know who made money writing a sort of a textbook was the guy who accidentally wrote um, Internet Explorer for Dummies, I think, or maybe Netscape for Dummies, where it was the person who wrote that book in like 1994 and then all of a sudden found he'd written a bestseller. But generally speaking, um, there's not a lot of money to be made in doing textbooks. Um, so we've always been about how do we get the maximum number of people to read our books? As, as Larry said, we were sort of a bit inspired by Tannenbaum. Like I learned networking by reading Tannenbaum and I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if the next generation of, of students think, yeah, I learned from Peterson and Davey. Um, and, you know, I don't think we're quite, well, we're definitely not at a level of name recognition as Tannenbaum. Um, but, you know, it is true that thousands, maybe even a million people have, have read, our, read our book over six editions. Um, so occasionally you do show up somewhere and people say, oh, you're that Bruce Davey. Um, so, you know, it, it is actually, it's really nice. But, you know, we, we just want people to benefit from the content and open source is a great way to do that. So some of this was about getting our incentives aligned with the publisher's incentives. And, you know, about five years later, we got an agreement with the publisher to go ahead and do it the way we wanted to. How much of that was, uh, I don't know, working on the book and converting it and so on versus trying to figure out how to make things work with the publisher? Was that a, a difficult thing or did they just move slowly? Uh, they, they definitely move slowly. Um, I, and I, you know, I know we had we had an editor at, in 2012 who I think was quite innovative and and quite open to this idea, and um, and she actually she brought in another person from the publisher who, who made this very nice comment about how the Oxford English Dictionary loses money for Oxford University Press, but it's a fantastic. Um, sort of brand ambassador for, for Oxford University Press. And I was like, okay, well, I can definitely live with being the Oxford English Dictionary for, uh, for Elsevier. So, uh, so you know, they actually had this model of it being kind of a loss leader. As Larry said, there's a lot of turnover in the publishing industry. And so we just got to, we'd get a bit of momentum and then we'd have a new editor and the momentum would go away. And so it was just, you know, it's a lot of sort of hurry up and wait um, before we actually got that sorted. And then I think the technical side of doing everything we needed to put it up online. That was something that Larry really took the lead on. So I'll let him talk about that. He's, he's Mr. Tools for, uh, for, our, for our outfit. Yeah, I was, I was trying to reconstruct it in my mind. I think it, if you start the clock in 2012, I think it was 2018 when we actually got permission to put the source up on GitHub. And there's a whole line of thinking about what copyright notice you put on, but we used uh, Creative Commons, and it's kind of like an Apache 2.0 for, for this sort of this sort of thing. And uh, yeah, so we we got the Ross. It, it was LaTeX, but it was having been through a copy or a design artist's hands. Uh, it was a it was a mess. So it took a while to clean that up, and then. We got it up in um, originally Markdown, but we're using restructured text now. So there's a whole tool chain about you edit, you can run the tool chain, you can generate the LaTeX, you can generate the PDFs, you can generate the HTML and H, uh, eBooks and so on. So there was some, some effort in that over the two year period until we finally had a, a stable version. And, and then there was obviously the updating material. It was by that point, uh, a good 10 plus years old. So it was just a little dated. Not much had happened over the 10 years, but we did need to update a little bit. I mean, there's, there's another point there too, which is that, you know, updating a computer networking textbook, I think the first thing people might think is, well, gosh, so much changes in 10 years, you must have to rewrite everything. But actually, no, because this is partly because of the kind of book that we wrote. 
our book is about the fundamental principles of networking illustrated with things that are implemented in today's internet. Um, and, you know, in some sense, that's kind of what the systems approach is about. It's like you, you have real implementations to, to back up your theory and you're looking at a, at a complete system, not just individual components. And so for us, the internet is the system and we're always trying to explain these are the principles that went into building the internet. And we're not just going to tell you like this is a protocol that exists and was handed down from God. We're going to say there's a set of problems that existed. People tried to fix them. Eventually, they landed on this solution. And that solution worked because of all the different components and how they interacted. Um, congestion control is one of my favorites where there's actually a lot of different moving parts in terms of how routers work, how TCP works, how applications consume a TCP byte stream, all the different pieces you know, all play together in, when you look at something as, as a, you know, seemingly well-contained as congestion control. So that's kind of the systems approach. But all of the ideas of TCP congestion control have been around since the 80s. And there've been incremental improvements since then. But if you want to teach somebody about congestion control, you can go a long way just by you know, telling them the fundamentals that were understood in the 1980s. And so when you do an update to your book in 2019, yes, you can touch on some new things that have been done in congestion control. You know, like TCP cubic has only been around for maybe a, a third as long as the original algorithms. But the fundamental principles are the same and you don't have to rewrite that part. And then, you know, so that's one thing about rewrite, you know, updating the book every few years is the fundamental principles don't change. But certain things become much more important than they were and other things become much less important. You know, people don't really need to understand token rings so much these days. You know, absolutely, there was, there was a cool stuff that went on there. But these days, you're not going to run into a token ring outside of a museum most likely, hopefully. So uh, you don't need to spend so much time on that kind of technology. You still have to explain how multi-access networks work, um, particularly now that wireless is so important. And wireless was not in our first edition um, because nobody used it, it barely existed. Um, so those are the kinds of things that you, you do when you're updating a book. You, you know, for, for me going through, I hadn't picked the textbook up in, in literally 10 years and, and cracked it open. When I did to start working on, on some updates, it just struck me that what we had done is we had recorded the history of the internet because Bruce and I were at the table when RSVP and TCP congestion control and multipath TCP and all of these things are happening. We were you know, literally recording history and it, it ended up in the book, but it, it did feel a little bit like a, a history book. And so we, it, it, it's both, making it a little bit more relevant today and, and adapting. But it's also, I think, back to the systems approach, finding lessons from history that are still applicable today. So my favorite, and, and it, you know, token ring, maybe there's some value there, maybe, maybe not. It's one that we chose to cut. But only, let me give you an example, and this is my favorite one. I insisted on leaving the history in, which is the history of the routing metrics in the, that started in the ARPANET, because it took them several iterations to get the way that you assign weights to links to compute routing, uh, routing tables or forwarding tables. And I just thought it was a great example of, you know, the value of keep it simple, stupid, because they had grown more and more complex because it was such an interesting optimization problem. Surely if we were just put our uh, thinking caps on, we could come up with an even more clever algorithm. And as you walk through that, that sequence, and then you end up realizing that the simplest 
solution was probably the right one. I just thought it was a great lesson. And so we've looked for examples where we can keep, keep those in. And I think just, I don't know, maybe we're old fogies here a little bit, but uh, there's a lot of interesting history as to how we got to where we are today that's pretty important to not, not lose because things do come around. So I actually want to ask a question about length. So if you're doing something that was purely electronic and it wasn't also going to be produced in a printed edition, you might have a lot less pressure to keep it to a, a reasonable length uh, because you know uh, it, it doesn't matter if you're uh, downloading you know 100 megabytes or 120 megabytes uh, to to look at the book. Does the fact that you're also producing a printed edition does that uh, put pressure on you to keep it short? I, I mean, you talk about things that you took out. Did you want to take those out? Or uh, was it just a, a matter of you didn't have space for it? Oh, th this is really important. Um, so the thing that you really have to be careful about is perspective. And one of the guiding principles that we had when we were doing the first edition was don't be an encyclopedia. Um, if you want an encyclopedia, you know, they're, they, they're out there. Um, and there are even computer networking textbooks that are much more encyclopedic than ours. But an encyclopedia doesn't help a student understand what's important. And so for us, we consider perspective to be kind of one of our guiding principles, the idea that you help people understand this is important and this isn't. And so simply describing every technology under the sun and never cutting anything out is actually doing it the students or the readers a disservice. Um, so I will say it's a, it's a nice constraint to have a publisher tell you, you know, we really don't want this book to be 800 pages. Um, and by the way, you should see the German translations of our book. They're amazing. We never really thought about page count as a big problem. Um, you know, an 800 page book is, is not, a, not a great thing to pick up if, as a student, but honestly, the, the bigger issue for us is every word that you put in that doesn't need to be there is actually a disservice to the student. It's not just that it wastes a little bit of paper. Um, so for me, the electronic thing is not such an issue. Um, there's lots of upsides to the electronic thing, but, but additional length for me is not one of them. I, I guess I, I want to mention too, one of my, my favorite reviews we ever received for this book. Um, it's the favorite, it, it's a one-star review, I think. Um, so it's only favorite in a particular sense, but the only thing I remember about it is the title. It's called uh, Wall of Text. And Larry and I have a running joke that we're going to start a, a rock band called Wall of Text um, as a reminder to not, not ever do this in the book. Um, but it's uh, so, you know, you can kind of guess what's in the rest of the review, right? It, it's that we, we had too many words and, you know, maybe not enough pictures to go with them. Um, but for me, like that is, again, it's a guiding principle. It's like, don't ever make a student write that review again. That's a great anecdote. Um... You've sort of a couple of times referred to, to the subtitle, the a systems approach part of the title. And I wondered if you could uh, better encapsulate that for me. When I hear networking, when I hear systems, I, I think of what's almost uh, feels sometimes almost like a fight where uh, some, sometimes uh, someone will, uh, will say something uh, about how they're a networking person and then and someone will immediately disagree. No, no, I'm, I'm not a networking person. I'm a systems <laughs> person. And uh, this, uh, th that's one of the things that that sort of subtitle evokes in me. And I wonder if you have any uh, 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 comments or expansion on what the systems approach part means to you. Yeah. So how long do you want this podcast to be? <laughs> Where we, we go on. <laughs> you can have a wall of audio. So for me, the systems approach is you think about how all the components work together as a system 
and you you don't get to go and optimize an individual component without thinking about how it fits in a bigger system. One of the easiest ways to think about what is the systems approach is to think about what's not a systems approach. So it's not a systems approach if you say, I'm going to come up with a particular modulation scheme that does an amazingly good job about squeezing bits into a certain amount of bandwidth and completely ignore how that fits into the rest of the network architecture. And generally speaking, in, in the world of networks, the seven layer model is almost the opposite of a systems approach. You, you can kind of say, well, I've done an amazingly great job of optimizing the link layer. So my job is done and somebody else can worry about the layer below and someone else can worry about the layer above. I'm done, I optimized my box. So that's the opposite of the systems approach. And then the, the, real, the real systems approach then is to say, actually, I've got a network and its job is to make an application work really well. How do I put all the components together to make the application work really well? And maybe that includes a bit of congestion control. Maybe it includes a bit of work at the link layer. Maybe it involves some content distribution network, you know, sort of operating the application layer, all these different things. And so you, you can't ignore the rest of the system. So for me, that's, that's the systems approach in a nutshell. As I say, I could go on for another half hour, but I'll shut up and give Larry a go. Yeah, I don't know that I could add an awful lot to it, except just to amplify what Bruce was saying a minute ago about perspective. I think I'm trying to tie the perspective together with the systems approach. It's definitely a holistic system-wide. That perspective, if you will, is, is the important one, that you can, you can turn the system and, and look at it from different angles. You can look at it from the angle of the designer. You can look at it from the angle of the operator. You can look at it from the, from the perspective of the user. So there's a lot of stakeholders and you need to take them all into consideration. Again, it's, it's a matter of you're not just optimizing one dimension. It's a very multidimensional problem and that's always at the forefront. And I think the other thing that just tying systems, you know, the systems approach to perspective is that certain things are more important. A system will pivot on some aspect. We all know the narrow waste. And so that you can, you can understand at a, at a very deep level why the narrow waste is important and why it helped you structure uh, the system as a, as a whole. And now thinking about narrow waste, I think it also points to the fact that whether you're talking about a network or a, a network system or a storage system or a parallel computing system or a cloud system, it turns out there's a set of ideas and principles that are common across all of them separation of policy and mechanism, um, you know, narrow waste and so on. So we, we always were looking for opportunities to draw those out and draw attention to these principles. They're, just, they're not gonna change even when the technology changes and even when the, uh, the application space changes. Do you see that as one of the distinguishing principles of, of the book? I know that there's a couple of other uh, popular uh, networking textbooks. Um, do, do you feel that they take a, a narrower approach? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's um, obviously, yeah, there are other other books out there, and, and some of them are really good. Um, so I, I don't want to say, you know, we're the best networking book out there. But um, I think what we found when we were doing the first edition, there were, wasn't really a book that had the internet at its core. Um, and, you know, bear in mind, this was 1995. And so the internet had not yet kind of established itself as the dominant network. There were still a lot of people who thought that ATM was going to win. There were people talking about building an information superhighway based on the cable TV network. Um, you know, so <laughs> there were a lot of contenders for the sort of the network of the future in 1995. Um, we, you know, we, we believed the internet was it. And so we, we put that at, at the heart of what we did. At the time, that was a distinctive 
feature. Today, that's kind of an obvious thing that anybody would do writing a networking book. So I do think the, the systems approach is still is quite distinctive for, for our book. And like, to be honest, like I think my other favorite networking book is Carosi and Ross. Um, and they, I think, came out maybe a, a year or so after us with their first edition. And they made a very, very good decision to start from the application and work down. Whereas, you know, we started more from the, the bottom up, although it wasn't necessarily that we thought of it as bottom up. We sort of thought the way we learned networks was the first thing you had to understand was like, how do I connect a couple of things together? Well, I've got to put bits on the wire. And so we kind of worked through it as a sequence of problems, but that did ultimately lend itself to a fairly bottom up approach. And then Carosi and Ross came along and said, well, you know, today's students in 1996 have already experienced networking applications. And so they kind of started from applications that worked down, which I think was absolutely fantastic. So I like that for me, you know, I'd like to say give credit to the, what I consider is one of the best networking books out there, not by us as, uh, as Carosi and Ross. But I, I do think our, our approach to systems it is very much in keeping with what you said about systems people um, that, you know, I, I believe systems people are always thinking, how do I build a working system? which is more about getting all the pieces to work together in a holistic way rather than optimizing one particular piece. And I think you'll find this when you go and talk to, to customers, you know, as you and I have done at, at VMware, occasionally you'll run into people who are, you know, the, they're not system thinkers and they're, they're really going to be focused on, well, how do I optimize like the packets per second through the vSwitch, right? And they'll be obsessed with that one part of the problem and then you'll say, yeah, but you know, that isn't actually the important part of the problem. Like, you know, have you thought about how that affects things like, you know, operational cost or, you know, being able to do mobility or any number of things. And, and so it's, it's when people focus on optimizing one thing that I think is the failure mode that we try to educate people to avoid. Right. I, I see a lot of this around um, virtual switching in particular. Um, people will say, well, it, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, get the highest scores on my benchmark. And then I point out, well, uh, yes, um, if you want the highest scores on your benchmark, are you willing to give up a couple of CPU cores for that? And they usually say, hmm, I'm not sure. Yeah, or give up all the benefits of virtualization, you know, which is another thing. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. I think that's, for me, like that's, that was one of my pet peeves was, you know, it's very hard to deal with somebody who doesn't think in a systems way. And, you know, you, you ultimately, would like to help them see the benefit of thinking in a systems way. You know, just, I think that uh, going back a little bit to what was new and what happened in the sixth edition, I think one of the biggest things is that we brought another dimension into the equation that we hadn't really paid attention to so much before, which was feature velocity. When we were standardizing everything, things moved at a pretty slow pace and, you know, a textbook on a, whatever, a three-year cycle and standards on a three-year cycle wasn't such a mismatch. But, and then this is at the influence of the cloud with the, the cloud causing things to change so fast. Feature velocity is now in our vocabulary. We brought that theme pretty strongly through the sixth edition, but I think it, it's ultimately gonna change the way we teach networking. I don't think we got all the way to where we need to get to with what we did in the sixth edition. It's, it's changing the way that you think about networks and you build them and you build them to evolve and you build them to, so that they're oper that you can manage them because they're evolving fast and so, and so on. So I think we're probably right at an inflection point right now where that's going to become the dominant way of thinking about networking. And the way that we taught it 10 years ago was just going to be, is going to be old news. Yeah. Uh, and I think the other thing that kind of dovetails with that is the, the rise of cloud services 
just has a huge impact on networking. And, you know, here we are sitting on Zoom and, you know, it, it, it provides a nice illusion that we're all talking to each other. But, you know, in fact, there's this sort of big cloud service that makes the whole thing work. And, you know, that's taking, taking care of making sure that we could actually find each other, that, you know, we can do a nice recording. Like all the cloud services actually change the way that networks operate. And, you know, that's true whether you're thinking video streaming or any other application. It's not just two endpoints sending packets to each other anymore. And I think that's a, that's a really big shift in networking as well that we, we tried to capture in this edition. Those seem like some pretty good wrap-up thoughts. So thank you for uh, uh, providing uh, those, uh, both, uh, both Bruce and Larry. As we're finishing up, is, is there anything that uh, you'd like to, to talk about that we didn't already get to in the conversation? I mean, I guess what I want to do is just make sure that people know how they can get involved in what we're doing. Because, you know, we're really at this point trying to build a community around this. I'm sure you can make some, some links in your show notes so people can track us down. Systemsapproach.org will get you to our website and pretty much everything you, can, you want to find is linked off from there. Um, so, you know, we've, we've got existing books that people can contribute to, currently three of them. Um, we've got new books in the works, um, currently doing one on congestion control. We've got a long list of books we want to do. And, and so I'd love to hear from people who want to get involved. We are shortly going to start up a newsletter um, since that apparently is the, uh, the 2021 way to connect with people. Um, so you'll be finding us on Substack pretty soon. And uh, so I just, I just want to make sure that people kind of know we're, we're actively looking to engage with the community and there are easy ways to, for people to do that. That sounds great. And I think I noticed the other day that uh, you have a, a Twitter account uh, dedicated to the uh, Systems Approach uh, series as well. That's correct. Yeah. We have Systems Approach on Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, you, you know, I, I think it's pretty easy. If people, people can figure out who we are, they can find us on Twitter. Great. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Ben, it's been, it's been a treat and I'm going to chase you down to help us write another book. OBS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution Unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org, or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.